How many of you thought you were coming to church and ended up in Sunday school? <laughs> I fudged. I set my clock yesterday about noon. He eased into it <laughs> so that I wasn't even aware that a change had come about. Today, we're talking about something that may be more than anything else at the heart of our lives that determines who we are and how successful living comes for each one of us. It is a matter of making a choice. Every one of us is forced to make a choice and the choice that we make will determine overwhelmingly what life becomes for us. The choice is whether we will live for God or whether we live for ourselves. And it's that clear cut. Nothing vague about it. You can't do both. You can be a servant of God and a recipient of his blessings and therefore have the best of both worlds. But you have to choose one over the other. If God is chosen over self, then everything that we experience as persons will be heightened, will be far better, far richer. If we choose self over God, we will live frustrated lives. We will put our values in those things that are not eternal. We will come to the end of our lives having the feeling that we have failed in every quarter of what we've set out to do. The matter of making a choice goes back into the Old Testament times. Elijah brought together the people on Mount Carmel and he said to them, choose whom you will serve. How long will you pause between two choices? If God be Lord, serve him. If Baal be Lord, serve him. But you can't serve both. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, which is by far the most profound discourse on how to live than any other literature ever produced, Jesus said very succinctly and very forthrightly, you cannot serve two masters. You will serve the one or you will serve the other. You cannot serve two masters. You will either serve God or you will serve material resources, material riches, but you can't serve both. Now, Jesus made that distinction, serving God or material riches, with full knowledge that when we choose not to serve God, it is a choice for ourselves, and choosing ourselves, it is a matter of trying to amass riches in a materialistic world rather than riches in a spiritual world. In our lesson, our lesson writer made an observation that had not occurred to me, but I thought it was quite incisive. He said that when Jesus began his ministry, he was tempted before he could go out and 
fulfill his ministry. Tempted just as we are by the same things that we are tempted. The telling of Jesus' temptation just simply dwells upon the fact that he was tempted and it illuminated those areas in which he was tempted. And those are the same areas that we have to face in making the choices in our lives. Jesus was told, change these loaves into bread, these stones into bread. And the lesson writer said that by doing so, the tempter was tempting Jesus to choose material things over spiritual things. Each of us are confronted with making that decision, whether we will condition our lives for spiritual growth or whether we will depend upon material things to give meaning to our lives. I face that in my life, and I can validate it by my own experience. When I was a student at the university, I was trying to choose what I was going to do for the rest of my life what my vocation would be. Now, I'm going to make a confession to you, and it's not really a confession because you already know it, because you know me well enough to know it. I love material things. I love eating in fine restaurants. I love traveling around the world and going to Rome and London and Paris and places of great aesthetic nature. I drive a Toyota. If I were rich, I'd drive a, I'd drive a Lexus. <laughs> I haven't outgrown my desire for material things. And here was a chance in my life that I could choose to have all of these things. A beautiful home, a mountain retreat, a seaside retreat. My choice for vocation was to be an architect. Now, I don't say necessarily that I would have been a great architect, except to say I had all the makings for it. My wife's great uncle was the premier architect in Knoxville, Charlie Barber of Barber McMurray. He designed Church Street Church, Second Presbyterian, Ayers Hall on the Hill, the College of Law, buildings all over the campus, buildings all over the country. He designed that beautiful chapel at Lake Zilluska. I still love architecture, still love beautiful buildings. But something inside said that's not it. So as I have shared with you before, I chose law. Some of you are lawyers here, and I commend you because the skills that you use are the same skills that I use. Research, study, all of these things, debate. I had a judge, Judge James Witt, in one of my churches, and he said, Vance, if I could think on my feet and express myself the way you do, I'd be a millionaire. Now, I don't claim that as being fact, but simply to say he encouraged me to the point of saying if I had been a lawyer, I would be successful because I possess the gifts to do so. But something inside said to me, that's not it. And it was on the lakes of Lake Junaluska on a summer's evening that suddenly my search ended. I knew what my life was to be, and it would be a life of poverty. 
because I chose to go into the ministry. <laughs> now, when I came into the ministry, we didn't have these beautiful parsonages. <laughs> we didn't have, my first salary was $600 a year. It's a long time before I got above that. <laughs> but I didn't choose it because of what material rewards it would give. It was because I wanted my life to count for something worthwhile. I said to a friend of mine as we went into my senior year at the university, we were lying on the lawn in front of Ayers Hall. He knew what he wanted to do and he was excited about his career. And I said, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. But I do, I, I do know one thing. I can't live my life for my own selfish interests. It has to be altruistic. I stand to you after having served as a pastor for 40 years to say I wouldn't trade one minute. I've never regretted it for one second. I'm exactly where I want to be, and I have been exactly where I wanted to be. And I'm living in a modest house. I eat in a restaurant whenever somebody gives me a gift certificate. <laughs> <laughs> and Mike and Nancy paid my expenses to Rome. <laughs> but I wouldn't have it any other way. The fact that in retirement I can continue my ministry with you is the greatest gift that anyone could ever have. I made that choice a long time ago. And it was the right choice, whether to serve God or to serve myself. The tempter said to Jesus, leap off the top of the temple. Make a great spectacle. You'll become famous. There's a temptation to become famous. You all have heard the news reports just over the last couple of weeks of the study that was made of high school students and college students in depicting what they wanted out of life for themselves. Eighty plus percent of the students said wealth and fame. Not many saw life as a challenge to make a difference in the world. And that's sad. We've been conditioned into that because we have lures all around us wanting things, wanting to be famous. But to choose that is to lose out on life altogether. A DVD of the 25th anniversary of the movie Gandhi came out last week. And at our house, we're the first one to pick up a new release. So we watched Gandhi. I hadn't seen it for many years, but I was impressed all over again the fact that this young Indian living in London, a graduate of Oxford University, a lawyer, who had all of the gifts that a lawyer needs in order to be successful, living in a social environment where he was popular at all of the parties, couldn't get out of his mind the fact that his fellow Indians in South Africa were being discriminated against. And so with his skills as a lawyer, with his sensitivity to the social needs, he left London and went to South Africa. There he was turned away from an Anglican church because he was an Indian and not a Caucasian. He was thrown off a train. He was humiliated in every way that one could be. The thing that a normal person would say, I don't like this kind of life. I'm going back to London where things were great. Instead, he went to India 
and he took on the apparel of the impoverished. He lived among the impoverished. He did everything that he could to bring life to a nation that was under the heel of a nation that deprived them of their freedom. We all know the story of Mahatma Gandhi. He died the way he lived, in poverty, dressed like the impoverished, when he could have had so many riches around him. And India has never been the same, and the world has never been the same. And Martin Luther King learned from him how to bring freedom to blacks in America. A man who chose the spiritual life over self. And the third temptation that Jesus faced in the wilderness was the temptation to own possessions. The tempter said to him, I'll give you all of the riches of the world and for it to be a temptation for whatever reason, he must have thought that it could be realized. And he said no. He didn't want power which the tempter offered. I'll make you the king of the world. I'll give you power. When I was in Chattanooga, the pastor at First Presbyterian Church was the man of the town. Everyone referred to First Presbyterian Church as his church, not by its proper name. And the church I served had lost many members that transferred over to that church when he became the pastor. But he had become a minister late in life. Arthur, where are you? You know him, I guess. He was publisher of the Kingsport Press at one time. I think he went to Florida and became publisher of a newspaper there. Newspaper publishers have power. Don't think for one moment that they don't have power. There you, I don't know why I looked over here for you because you're on <laughs> I heard on PBS this morning before I came to church where one of the candidates for the Democratic presidency speaking in Iowa was being quoted for some of the things that he said. And the commentator said he can talk all he wants to because the press is not going to pick it up. He, he's not first page news. As long as there's Hillary Clinton, as long as there's Obama, nobody else has a chance. You all have that power. You can take the events of the world and put them in the capsule that you want us to see them. And we are limited in our choices by what the news media allows us to know and to understand. There's real power in a newspaper. When Billy Graham first began his ministry, he was preaching in Los Angeles under a big tent, an evangelist from North Carolina. He'd been there three or four weeks and not much was going on until one night a crime, a member of a crime syndicate was converted. And when that conversion came about, it hit the newspapers. And the publisher of the newspaper said, to his reporters, I want you to go in and cover this young man from North Carolina who was able to bring a conversion to this figure who is so visible in crime. They went 
They covered him. They put him on the front page of the newspaper. They had biographical sketches about him. The tent began to fill to overflowing. They extended it for weeks. He had momentum and it never slacked. And I've often wondered what would happen if he had not had the kind of boost that newspaper coverage had given. You all have power. You have real power. And using it wisely is a sense of stewardship that you and most have. I'm impressed with the way that all viewpoints are shared in your paper. If I wanted to get my viewpoint only, I know papers I could subscribe to. <laughs> but I want, I want to see all sides. I want to have all viewpoints and make my own decision. And men like you and others take that sense of responsibility and make it possible for us to live better lives. But if you had chosen to be a newspaper publisher because of the power that it gives you, then you have made the wrong choice. Jesus didn't choose to make that choice. And so the minister about whom I spoke in Chattanooga attended a Billy Graham's revival at Madison Square Garden in New York, and he was converted. And he said, I've got to give my life to this kind of news. And he went to seminary and became an outstanding minister. He chose with his skills to serve God, not himself. This is a choice that comes to every one of us, whether we are going to use our abilities, our gifts, our resources, spiritually to make the world a better world, or whether we're going to use it selfishly to get out of the life the most that we can get for ourselves alone. Now, let me say right now that having riches, choosing a profession that brings great rewards is not contrary to the spirit of giving yourself to a spiritual life. God puts wealth in the hands of many, and they use that to make the world better. There's hardly any power in the world more powerful than money. And if you use that money for the good of others, you are making a contribution that few people can make. If you are a person of wealth, God has placed in your hands one of the greatest instruments of service that one could have. My son Wesley, when he went to medical school, called me up on the phone and he said, Dad, I guess this means I won't be going to seminary. He has said to me two or three times recently, I wonder if I should have gone on and become a minister. And I said, you're doing far more than you could ever do as a minister. He's a practicing physician and there comes rewards to those who are conscientious in their practice of medicine. He has gone on mission trips, giving his skills to impoverished communities. He's using his resources in order to help people. The amount of free medical practice he gives, only you doctors who give the same amount would know. I said to Wesley, you're far more powerful image of God in the world than you would be if you were serving a little church out here somewhere with a handful of people. Not to put down the ministry, but simply to say there is a place for service for every one of us when we choose the spiritual over the material. The choice we make will affect our lives totally.
When we choose God, we choose two things, creed and deed. It's not simply a matter of saying, I surrender my life, and then life goes on as usual. We subscribe to a creed, a creed that says Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has brought truth into the world. He has brought light into the world. All the things we've talked about, these are the things that we affirm. But we can affirm them till we're blue in the face, and it won't bring us any closer to God. Unless, because of those beliefs, then we apply our lives with deeds. That which follows our commitment to Christ validates the true depth of our commitment. I know some of you in here who have used your resources to enrich the lives of so many people and how I envy your ability to do that. It's putting deeds that support your creeds. One last illustration, even though I'm out of time. A couple of you scolded me last week for not running over time, so I'm going to honor you this week and run over time. <laughs> I went to Emory University, which is Coca-Cola on the campus of Emory University is called Candler Wine. <laughs> because Asa Candler is the man who built Emory University. His brother was a Methodist bishop, but Asa Candler was the founder of Coca-Cola. He was born in poverty in South Georgia, but he was reared with God-fearing parents, had a deep faith. So as he grew up, he applied the principles of faith to his life. He became one of the richest men in America through Coca-Cola. And some have said that he is the architect of Atlanta because he did so many things to build Atlanta. One of these was Emory University. He built the hospital at Emory University, which today is listed among the 10 top hospitals in America. He built it out of his own pocket. No help from anybody else. He bought the land on which Emory University was being built, and he supported the creation of a theology school. He had a son, Asa Jr., and he was reared with the same principles as his father had been reared. His father sent him to California to open up Coca-Cola plants there. But being a young man in his early 20s, with all the wealth of which he was surrounded, it was just too much for him. He fell in with the wrong crowd. He began to party and take advantage of the worldly things. And he discovered too late that he was an alcoholic, that when he drank socially with his friends, it didn't stop there. He couldn't stop there. He, was, he had an illness that drove him into alcoholism. Finally, he returned home. When he went to California, his mother had given him a ring and said, I want you to look at this ring and be reminded that you are to pray every day. And here's a Bible and you're to read it every day. And he said, I honored those things, but I had just allowed temptation to take hold of my life too much. And so he came back home. He was coming home in his limousine in Atlanta. He was, three, in his words, three-fourths drunk. He heard a voice say, get rid of yourself. And he turned to his chauffeur and said, did you hear a voice? And the chauffeur said, I didn't hear a thing. And he said, I heard this as clearly as if it were someone sitting beside me. Get rid of yourself. And I thought, if this is God talking, why didn't he say, get rid of your alcoholism? I don't know how to get rid of myself. And so he staggered into the house where he said his wife met him at the door. 
how she cared for him and loved him in spite of the fact that he had fallen to such depths. And he fell in a chair and told her what had happened. And he said, suddenly as I thought about it, I began to feel an inner strength. And I called for my wife and said, bring me this bottle of whiskey that was sitting on the table. He said, in my house, it was always open so that I didn't have to fumble to get a glass of it. And he said, bring me a ribbon. And he tied the cork in. He said, now put it upon the shelf. He said, to this day, I have never yearned for a drink. I found a power in my life because I had surrendered myself. I wasn't living now for myself. The story is long and beautiful. It was reported in Time magazine under the headline of those whose lives have been changed. He said that now at the end of his life, as he told his story, he said, I give 75% of my worth every year to the needs of others. And I don't do it myself because I'm afraid I'll become vain and selfish. And I do it through the two ministers in my life. I'm a Methodist. My wife is a Baptist. We go to the Methodist church in the morning. We go to the Baptist church in the evening. And I channel all of my money through them so that when a need arises, it is they who gives the need. That people won't praise me for what I'm giving them. And he said, I have five young men employed to do nothing but to go out and find people who are in desperate straits and channel into their lives the money that I have put through the hands of the two ministers. He said, life has become so full and so rich for me. As I come close to the end of my life, I want to leave behind a legacy that will encourage the lives of others. And he built an abbey at Westview Cemetery in Atlanta. I visited when I was a student at Emory University. Magnificent. He illustrated the five major sermons of Jesus in stained glass and in paintings. Majestic statuary. He said, I want people when they come to the cemetery to go away feeling like that life is just beginning and life is beautiful and nothing is lost. I want to take everything that Jesus taught and put it here in one place where the people who are breathing can come and get enriched with their lives. He said, when my life comes to an end, I want to leave enough to take care of my children, but I want everything else to be given away so that I take nothing of my own into death. Men like that live lives that with time, their impact fades, we forget. I remember passing this beautiful home just off the campus of Emory University with a high fence around it, a majestic home. When he died, he left it to the state of Georgia to treat people who are afflicted with alcoholism and other mental illnesses. One day, he gave his loyalty to Christ and not to himself. His legacy will live on in the lives of countless others while many other lives go untouched by the lives of so many who don't live fully what God called us to become and do.